This is the podcast Surgery I See Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. topic today is a metabolic acidosis in the intensive care unit, something that we see commonly in the ICU, but uh, I think few really have much of a command of, of what the problem is, how to uh, identify uh, a metabolic acidosis, identify what the etiology is, and then what do you do about it once uh, you've identified a patient has one. A normal blood pH is typically uh, identified between 7.38 and 7.42. A typical geek question, uh, useless information that you would never need to know, is that really corresponds to a hydrogen ion concentration between 42 to 38 nanomoles per liter. It would seem self-evident, but an ac- a metabolic acidosis is really caused by one of really two processes. You have an increased accumulation of acids, or you have a decrease, uh, excuse me, an increased accumulation of acids, or an increase in the wasting of uh, a base on sodium bicarbonate. You can typically lose sodium bicarbonate either in the GI tract in the form of diarrhea uh, or uh, through the kidney uh, in the various forms of renal tubular acidosis. If you look at people who are typically in intensive care unit, the very nature of what puts them in an intensive care unit makes uh, the finding of a metabolic acidosis uh, in a critically ill patient uh, a reasonably common occurrence. Um, typically, people will compensate or try to compensate with a metabolic acidosis by increasing their metaventilation. This is known as respiratory compensation. If a patient has a metabolic acidosis, they'll try to compensate by increasing their respiratory rate. Uh, this will typically, um, uh, you can typically see near-complete respiratory compensation uh, within hours. But compensatory hyperventilation is is not as quick as many people may think, and it may not be complete for 12 or 24 hours. Now, if you take somebody who is mechanically ventilated, somebody who which we are controlling their minute ventilation, uh, if they have a, 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 a metabolic acidosis with incomplete or absence of respiratory compensation, that's really on us, the physician, because we have to be monitoring the fact that the patient has a metabolic acidosis and what are we doing with the mechanical ventilator to allow the patient to compensate. Now, the the core reference that I'm using for this talk is an article on metabolic acidosis in the intensive care unit. The author, and I apologize, is um, Philippe Gauthier and Harold Zerlip, two nephrologists uh, from uh, Tulane University in New Orleans. In their article in Critical Care Clinics, they actually start about what is the approach to a patient who has an acid-based disturbance. And clearly, any um, a patient who you suspect uh, or know has an acid-based disorder needs a, a routine um, uh, arterial blood gas as well as an electrolyte panel. One of the things that I find um, um, rather annoying is that when somebody's presenting somebody who has an acid-based disorder and they'll present the PCO2, they'll present the pH and, and the PO2 from the blood gas uh, without a bicarbonate. Um, you, you need to know what the patient's bicarbonate level is. When you look at a blood gas, typically you'll see the bicarbonate level um, um, listed and then it'll say bicarb, parenthesis, CA or CAL. That'll tell you that the bicarbonate is a calculated bicarbonate, typically a derived from a nomogram. And that's why having a measured uh, um, um, metabolic profile or an electrolyte panel is helpful because you'll have a um, actually measured, not a calculated uh, bicarb. Now, how that blood gas is obtained is important because there are the ways that um, the sample can be obtained that will make 
uh, the findings um, uh, incorrect. When a blood gas spent is obtained, you'll, you'll notice nurses, the way they obtain it is much different than we as physicians would take because hopefully the nurses have been trained better than we have at obtaining the blood gas. But there are certain blood gas syringes, um, we call low friction syringe, that uses blood pressure as the driving force. If negative pressure is exerted, gas bubbles may result, which will equilibrate with the blood gases, rendering them inaccurate. Don't allow a blood gas to sit around in the ICU for very long. Often we stack them in ice, but they should go immediately um, to the blood gas lab for analysis because the red blood cells rely on anaerobic metabolism, and this will gradually acidify the sample. If you've done any work with children or small children or neonates, you're aware that they do what's called capillary blood gases, or also known as cap gases. Cap gases have been shown to provide an accurate assessment of both the pH and the uh, partial pressure of carbon dioxide, provided the site is worn prior to five minutes to collection. This is known as arterializing it. Uh, This need for warming precludes the use of capillary blood gases in emergencies. You really don't have the time to uh, uh, warm uh, the uh, area where we're going to do the cap gas. There are things that we can do by looking at the differences in both arterial gases and venous gases. And as we see an increased association between the arterial and venous uh, partial pressure of carbon dioxide, or the PCO2, this has been observed in animals, namely pigs, with decreased cardiac output, secondary to severe hemorrhagic shock, and in patients during cardiac arrest. Often in my unit, if we have problems getting an arterial line somebody, I'll actually uh, use venous blood gases to help drive some determination on the patient's physiology. I find, it's, I find venous blood gases very useful to use and, and very predictive of what a patient's physiology is doing. If you have, uh, are, uh, I think way too many patients have arterial lines just for the sake of our convenience. People who really should have arterial lines are patients who uh, are on vasopressors that require minute-to-minute management, patient who has an injury or something like a GI bleed where the patient could have a rapid loss of blood resulting in uh, physiological alteration or make the patient hemodynamically stable, uh, or somebody who's getting you know, a multitude of blood gases in any one day, say from you know, maybe more than uh, three blood gases a day. There really hasn't been any data to show that there's improved outcomes in patients who have arterial blood lines, excuse me, arterial catheters. The only thing we know for certain about arterial catheters is they increase our rate of phlebotomy. If a patient is a difficult stick or somebody doesn't want to stick, you can certainly use the venous blood gas. If you're looking at the pH on the venous side, you're going to know if they have a pH of 7.35 on the venous side, that's typically going to be lower than what you'd find on the arterial side. As we're going to discuss in this talk, that often it's the venous blood gas that's more predictive of the physiology. Also, the PCO2 turns out to be, say, 42 on your venous blood gas. Typically, the PCO, the partial pressure of carbon dioxide on the arterial side, is going to be lower not higher. And there are other methods to obtain how well somebody is ventilating, for instance, the use of the untitled CO2. And when we're looking at how well somebody's oxygenating, clearly more predictive of somebody's oxygenation or oxygen delivery is the oxygen saturation, not particularly the partial pressure of oxygen. But again, the, uh, going back to that the venous uh, blood gas can be more predictive of the physiology. Venous pH and venous partial pressure of carbon dioxide, which is the PCO2, have been shown to change earlier and to a greater extent than arterial values during uh, periods of circulatory insufficiency. And this was demonstrated by uh, Oropello and Chest in 1996. So again, a, a venous blood gas may show more um, earlier signs of uh, decompensation. So you could have signs indicating a problem on your venous blood gas that would not be evident on your arterial blood gas. 
Now, another uh, item that comes back on the blood gas that we often see is the anion gap. Now, you can have a measurement of an anion gap obtained, or you can uh, uh, calculate your uh, uh, anion gap. Calculation of the anion gap and subsequent allows you to separate acidosis into two types, basically uh, those with an elevated anion gap and those with a normal anion gap. Uh, the anion gap is defined as a difference between sodium, which is the major cation, the positive ion, uh, the positive ion, and the sum of chloride and bicarbonate, basically the negative ions. So take your positive ion, your sodium, and subtract away your negative ions, typically your chloride and your bicarbonate. The anion gap re um, results because there are anions uh, such as sulfate, phosphate, organic acids, and some weak acidic proteins that are not measured on routine chemistry panel. And again, some uh, uh, small and other unmeasured cations. And normal anion gaps considered approximately 10 plus or minus 4. So if somebody's got an anion gap of 12, that may not raise too many eyebrows. But somebody with an anion gap of 17 or 18, that's clearly abnormal. A significant increase in the anion gap um, above normal, even if somebody has a normal or even an alkalotic pH, reflects the addition of an organic acid. Uh, and the presence of an acidosis. Now, the key thing that needs to be mentioned there again, I'll say it for reiteration, is that you could have an elevation of your anion gap even in the face of an alkalotic pH. And the elevation of an anion gap even in the face of an alkalotic pH indicates an increase in organic acids. Now, you can also have a fall in the bicarbonate, um, and this is really a result of two things. And uh, you have um, the addition of an uh, endogenous, endogenously produced organic acid, which will then consume bicarbonate. And this consumption of bicarbonate is not matched by a rise in the chloride. Okay, you're consuming the bicarbonate. You're not matching it with the addition of the negative um, um, ion chloride, and that will widen the anion gap. The other possibility is a loss of bicarbonate in which the decline in bicarbonate is matched by a rise in chloride and the anion remains normal. And we mentioned earlier, you can lose bicarb either through renal wasting in cases of the various types of renal tubular acidosis or GI losses, which is a nice way of talking about diarrhea and high output fistulas and so forth. Now, if any arbitrary delineation of saying, you know, you have a patient who's got an anion gap or non-anion gap acidosis, uh, though we typically break our acidosis into those two types, strict adherence to that kind of a thinking can lead us down the primrose path. Now, when we look at the, now keep in mind that an anion gap uh, of 10 is considered normal. What are some of the things that make up that anion gap of 10 plus or minus 4? Well, it's comprised, that, that anion gap of 10 plus or minus 4 is comprised largely of proteins especially albumin. Now, hypoalbuminemia is something extremely common in critically ill patients. In fact, it's so common that I would say that I don't know when is the last time I treated a patient in a, in a burn ICU or any kind of other surgical ICU where the patient didn't have an, a, a lowering of their uh, albumin. And a lowering of the albumin uh, will uh, lower the anion gap and mask an underlying anion gap acidosis. Let's restate that. So what happens is, if we said a normal anion gap is 10, if somebody's uh, albumin is low, that's going to lower their anion gap. And then you add on top of that an anion gap acidosis, what do you have? You're going to have, so you take their anion gap from, say, 10 to 6, you add an anion gap acidosis on top of that, and their anion gap now is 10, you have basically an acidosis, 
with a normal anion gap because of the lowering of the albumin. Keep in mind that for every one gram of decrease in serum albumin below four, the serum anion gap should be corrected by two and a half to three. So a patient who is in a trauma or a burn ICU and they've got an albumin, say, of two, that means that could potentially lower your anion gap by six, which is pretty significant because you're really talking uh, about a 60% reduction in the anion gap just from having an albumin drop uh, from four to two. Another problem with over-reliance on the anion gap is that in many cases of lactic acidosis, the anion gap is not outside the normal range. Well, you should be able to see that now because a patient could be in the intensive care unit, have an anion gap of, say, 10, and they have an albumin of 2, and once you start adding, throwing your lactic acidosis on top of it, what's going to happen? Well, your anion gap will not have the star next to it. That's why getting additional information like the electrolyte panel and looking at the albumin can certainly help you identify, one, that the patient has an anion gap acidosis, and two, push for the lactate. So although elastic acidosis is traditionally described as an anion gap acidosis, the serum lactate uh, level may be quite elevated despite a normal anion gap. In fact, 50% of patients with a lactate level between 5 and 9.9 have anion gaps less than 12. 50%. The kidneys can excrete many organic acids, especially keto acids, replacing them with serum with chloride and thus reducing or even normalizing the anion gap. The extent to which this happens is largely a function of the, the GFR. Uh, therefore, a, in a typical hypovolemic, hyperglycemic diabetic with DKA will usually have an elevated anion gap, but occasionally patients who maintain euvolemia or patients who are being treated with IV fluids will often have a normal anion gap acidosis. So therefore, the anion gap remains a useful but clearly an imperfect measurement in the diagnosis of a metabolic acidosis. It is important, however, for the clinician never to rule out a possibility, excuse me, a possible etiology of acidosis on the basis of an anion gap alone. And I think we've clearly demonstrated uh, why an anion gap can be problematic. We've talked about the reduction of sodium bicarbonate. It's been long recognized that large infusions of volumes of normal saline can cause an acidosis. We describe this to a hyperchloremic uh, metabolic acidosis, but this has also been described as what could be called a dilutional acidosis. So this occurs in which the sodium bicarbonate is diluted by the fluid, resulting in lower serum bicarbonate and a metabolic acidosis. In serum, unlike normal saline, the strong ion chloride is found in a lower concentration than that in sodium. In a study of 12 surgical patients who developed metabolic acidosis after infusion on normal saline, the degree of acidosis best correlated to the amount of chloride administered and the increase in serum chloride. This is one of the reasons why when you're talking about large volumes of IV fluid resuscitation, lactate ringers, is typically a preferred IV fluid because you're not administering this large load of chloride. Now, our patient, we've identified our patient has a metabolic acidosis. We've identified that they have an, either an elevated anion gap or a non-elevated anion gap. But the real question comes in, so what? What's the big deal about somebody having a metabolic acidosis? What are the effects of this? Well, the effect, the uh, um, acidemia or acidosis will affect the cardiovascular system, the neurological system, respiratory, and, and clearly metabolic system. The severity and reversibility of dysfunction, however, is largely dependent on the underlying cause and magnitude of the derangement. Despite the existence of many studies examining the effects of acidosis on isolated cells and perfused organs, the effects of changes in pH on the whole body physiology 
are largely unknown. This is especially true in critically ill patients in whom it is difficult to dissect out the effects of acidosis from the effects of the illness. These patients have a lot of things going on, and it's difficult to compartmentalize one uh, uh, physiological effect solely on the acidosis and not attribute it to sepsis or organ dysfunction or um, respiratory distress syndrome. In the case of lactic acidosis, the lactate anion itself may cause some of the adverse effects normally attributed to the acidosis. That's independent of the serum pH. Although it intuitively makes sense that severe acidosis uh, should adversely affect cellular function, evidence to this assumption is clearly supporting the supposition is difficult to find. So though we think it may be the acidosis, there's not a whole lot of evidence-based medicine in it. That's clearly what the problem is here. Now we keep focusing on what is the serum pH. Well, the reason why that is is because we have a way of measuring it. We can get an arterial blood gas, and it'll say the pH of the arterial blood is 7.2, and we focus that that is the problem. But that's probably not the problem. The effects of changes in pH on cellular function, cellular function are most likely mediated by intracellular pH. Now, it's this finding that drastically changed the way we practice ACLS probably about 10 years ago. We used to use reasonably liberal amounts of sodium bicarbonate, and what we found out was that really it's intracellular pH is what we're more uh, worried about because that's what's resulting in the physiological effect of the acidosis. And when working on whole body models, a decrease in arterial pH on intracellular pH has not been well established. Now we said that uh, acidemia can affect the cardiovascular system. Um, and um, how and to what degree it affects the cardiovascular system has been strongly debated. Data on the effects of pH on the cardiac output have been con uh, conflicted and vary depending on the chronicity of the acidosis, whether the patient's been under general anesthesia, and, and in some cases the method of the data collection. When a patient uh, develops an acidosis and we see a fall in their pH, this results in an increase in sympathetic dis discharge. Typically, a patient in sympathetic discharge will do what? It will increase your blood pressure, increase your heart rate, increase your contractility. Uh, but simultaneously, we see a decrease in the responsiveness of cardiac cells and the vascular smooth muscles to the effects of catecholamines. So you may have a, a, a net wash that even though the sympathetic nervous system is pouring out things like catecholamines, the responsiveness of the end organs to the catecholamines may be decreased. Given mildly uh, acidemic conditions, I will say with a pH of greater than 7.2, the effects of increased sympathetic stimulation predominate and the result is an increase in heart rate and an increase in cardiac output. In less than chronic conditions, for instance, say if an acidosis develops rapidly, we may see uh, a, a left ventricular uh, uh, performance actually decrease. And in cases where the pH is less than 7.2, we see a decrease in responsiveness to circulating catecholamines. When you uh, imagine this, and when you're, you're treating somebody who's got refractory shock, you're going up on your vasopressors and not seeing any response, probably the one thing that people think of all too commonly nowadays is uh, adrenal insufficiency. Uh, but perhaps the more commonly thing people need to be actually worried about is, am I treating a patient who has an acidemia? Uh, if you imagine the fact that the catecholamine is a drug and the catecholamine has to bind to a receptor in order to work, uh, it binds to an adrenergic receptor, and an adrenergic receptor then subsequently does what? It increases intracellular calcium. Calcium is the common second messenger of all 
uh, catecholamines, right? Well, remember your adrenergic receptors are complex three-dimensional structures and they work by a lock and key phenomena. Well, if you go back to biochemistry that we had in undergraduate, we will remember that these complex proteins on these cellular membranes, like an adrenergic receptor, has a what's known as a quaternary um, structure. If that doesn't bring any biochem flashbacks, I don't know what does. And that uh, quaternary structure is a very complex three-dimensional structure to which the drug comes in and binds to. Once it binds, it does what? It initiates through mechanisms like cyclic AMP and so forth, increases intracellular calcium. Well, what maintains a quaternary structure? You know, remember, it's hydrogen bonding. Well, as you increase or decrease, me, as you increase the hydrogen ion concentration in the environment, which does a decrease in the pH or creating an acidosis, what does that do to the quaternary structure of the receptor? It changes it. So the whole molecule, the, the receptor, changes its shape. Well, it's like changing the lock um, to a, a door. Now here comes the person who has the key, but the lock has been changed. Well, you can't unlock the door. And that will create a situation of unresponsiveness or hyper-responsiveness uh, to various drugs or catecholamines. The other thing, as we said, is this results in a decrease in the influx and a decrease in uh, um, uh, the calcium. Therefore, some people would hypothesize that by increasing the extracellular calcium, uh, this may moderate the negative anotropic effect of acidosis, at least on a temporary basis. Despite the apparent pH dependence of catecholamine sensitivity, infusions of sodium bicarbonate does not appear to improve sensitivity to adrenergic uh, receptors, or excuse me, adrenergic agonists. And Orchid and colleagues demonstrated this in the American Journal of Physiology back in 1990. So if a patient has a pH 7.1, they're not responding to your vasopressors, Giving them bicarbonate is not likely to help. A large part of what we do in intensive care units, and some would argue the whole reason why we have intensive care units in general, is to improve oxygen delivery. Well, what is the effect of acidosis on oxygen delivery? Again, if we go back to biochemistry nightmares, we will remember the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And the oxygen, a typical question that uh, interns could be asked during their January tests or anybody who's been asked in medical school are what are things that change the, the position of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Those of you who aren't familiar with the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve is it predicts binding of oxygen to hemoglobin under a variety of conditions. When you're in the lung and you've got oxygen, you want oxygen to bind onto that hemoglobin tightly so it gets carried away and taken to peripheral tissues where uh, hopefully the conditions are such that oxygen will freely get off of that oxygen molecule and go to the tissue which needs it and help provide aer be there for aerobic metabolism for energy production. By uh, by increasing the hydrogen ion concentration or decreasing the pH, there are predictable patterns of how oxygen and hemoglobin will bind. And this association of oxygen from the uh, oxyhemoglobin is dependent in part upon the serum pH. And this is known as the Bohr effect. And when you're in a pH environment, as you increase the hydrogen ion concentration, this causes a rightward shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And this allows oxygen to, to be released from the um, uh, hemoglobin molecule uh, much, uh, with much uh, greater ease. Um, so when you imagine, imagine this, if, you're a if you ha have a hemoglobin molecule and it binds oxygen and you carry it to a peripheral tissue bed, that peripheral tissue bed may be in a state of acidosis. It could be from a lactic acidosis from not enough oxygen. Um, 
And so, by the presence of aerobic metabolism, that tissue bed is producing more hydrogen ion. Well, it would make sense adaptively, then, is that given a um, hemoglobin molecule, you want that hemoglobin molecule to freely release that oxygen molecule. And that makes sense. So what happens is, due to the Bohr effect, it shifts the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the right, the oxygen dissociates from it, and the oxygen gets used in aerobic me, in aerobic metabolism. Now, we focus a lot on acidosis, thinking how bad and horrible acidosis is, but acidosis typically is pretty uh, adaptive. We don't pay much attention to what is the effect of somebody who's got an alkalosis. If somebody's got a pH of 7.2 and they're in a test cure unit, that gets a lot of people's attention. But what if somebody's got a pH of 7.5 or 7.55? Do we pay equal amount of attention to that? No, and I think part of that is due to ignorance. But apply the same, the same effects of the Bohr effect uh, on, in a situation of alkalosis. Blood goes to a peripheral tissue, and that peripheral tissue is alkalotic. Well, what happens to that tissue is that the oxygen does not release from it as well as it would under an acidotic condition. Now, the downside of this is this, this beneficial effect of the acidosis uh, as far as releasing from the oxygen molecule may be counterbalanced by 2,3-DPG. Uh, Remember, 2,3-diphosphoglycerate is uh, used in red blood cells as well, and uh, a decrease in 2,3-DPG will uh, cause the oxygen to bind uh, the hemoglobin more tightly. I want to focus next on lactic acidosis. Uh, this is what we typically focus on in most surgical ICUs, and for the most part, it's the most serious of the anion gap acidosis. Blood lactate concentrations greater than 5 represent a significant lactic acidosis. And if you see somebody who's got an elevated lactate on a mission, okay, uh, somebody with a lactate greater than 5 on a mission, they have a 59% mortality at 3 days and an 83% mortality at 10 days. And the source for this is Stackpole and colleagues in the American Journal of Medicine back in 1994. Now, that's not to say the lactate is killing you. That's to say that, the, that that is a relationship, that uh, people who have an elevated lactate of 7 on admission may have ARDS, may have sepsis, may have uh, organ failure. We see elevated lactate as a result of anaerobic metabolism of pyruvate. That, remember, glycolysis, we go from glucose through glycolysis to, to pyruvate. Pyruvate then can enter the Krebs cycle and then eventually oxidative phosphorylation or in the absence of, of um, uh, oxygen, the uh, pyruvate cannot get into the Krebs cycle. Therefore, it's converted to lactate. And lactate can eventually go back up to the liver and, and get metabolized through the Cori cycle. It is th that form of lactic acidosis or that form of lactate generation that I would say probably 98% of people associate with lactic acidosis. And I think um, that's a safe approach. However, I think it's, it's a little bit naive uh, because there are a variety of other conditions that create elevated lactates. And if you focus solely on poor oxygen delivery uh, as, a, uh, as the cause of lactic acidosis, uh, you're going to be kind of missing the boat. There are basically two types of lactic acidosis. Type A lactic acidosis, which is the result of hypoxia, poor tissue perfusion. And there's type B lactic acidosis that occurs in the face of normal oxygen delivery and is often due to, to uh, medications and conditions. And um, I myself, I remember as a fellow treating somebody for an elevated lactate, doing everything right or what I thought was right, uh, and it, 
on a ventilator, increasing their oxygenation, driving out their PO2, floating a PA catheter, uh, demonstrating that they had actual, uh, actual adequate oxygen delivery, only to find out that it was nothing that I could do uh, to improve their condition. They had a type B lactic acidosis. The etiology of lactic acidosis um, can be um, seen in people who have systemic inflammatory response syndrome uh, or sepsis syndromes. Uh, and that may not be related to any kind of uh, oxygen deprivation situation. Massive pulmonary embolism can result in uh, lactic acidosis, a severe heart failure, shock, and uh, these are typically associated with impaired tissue oxygenation. Now, the type B acidosis uh, has preserved oxygenation, and you can see this in cases of diabetes, hypoglycemia, severe infections, malignancies. Uh, HIV infections, you can have an elevated lactate and have adequate oxygen delivery. Iron deficiency, hepatic failure, renal failure, thiamine deficiency, SIRS. Um, there's a variety of drugs and toxins. Um, if you're interested in toxicology, you need to be aware of what these could be. And, and people who are getting things like epinephrine, norepinephrine, other vasopressors, ethanol, methanol, ethylene glycol inhibitors, nipride, papaverine, salicylates, acetaminophen, uh, some of the protease inhibitors like AZT and DDI, isoniazide. These will all cause a lactic acidosis which is not dependent upon oxygen kinetics. That's the type B lactic acidosis. The lung is capable itself of releasing lactate in the face of an acute lung injury. Therefore, a lactic acidosis in a surge response remains poorly understood and is likely to be multifactorial. Although global or regional hypoxia certainly contributes to that in a surge condition, it is likely there's also defective oxygen utilization at the level of the mitochondria that's contributing to that lactic acidosis. If we really want to play lactic acidosis trivia, there's actually a third type of lactic acidosis. It's called a D-lactic acidosis. It's the result of the accumulation of the D-isomer of lactate. This isomer is produced by clonic bacteria that cannot be metabolized by lactate dehydrogenase. Lactic dehydrogenase is specific for the L-isomer of lactate. And the D-isomer has to be cleared by this enzyme, D-alpha-hydroxy acid dehydrogenase. We typically see a D-lactic acidosis in patients with short bowel syndrome, and it's usually precipitated by the patient being on a high-carbohydrate uh, diet. It's for these reasons that we try to moderate the carbohydrate intake in people who are sh have a short bowel. That increased carbohydrate intake will result in overgrowth of bacteria responsible for the overproduction of the D-isomer of lactate. What do we do with the acidosis? How do we treat it? Well, the treatment of lactic acidosis is fraught with controversy and is becoming increasingly nihilistic. Most people universally agree that the most important step is treatment is treatment of the underlying cause. If a muffler falls off your car, you can certainly turn up the radio or alternatively treat the muffler. In systemic inflammatory response or syndrome, restoring oxygenation via mechanical ventilation and perfusion using vasoactive drugs is, is clearly important, although unfortunately it does not always improve the lactic acidosis. In some patients with medication-induced lactic acidosis, with obviously withdrawal or stopping the offending agent uh, is clearly mandatory, and sometimes it's sufficient. Often treating the underlying cause helps the lactic acidosis, but there is those situations where the acidosis persists and then the clinician is faced on whether to give sodium bicarbonate in an attempt to raise serum pH. There are several potential problems with the administration of uh, uh, bicarbonate uh, to increase their arterial pH. First, as previously discussed, it's not clear uh, at what extent acidosis is harmful and therefore whether raising the pH is of any benefit at all. Uh, also, raising serum pH may actually 
increase lactic acid production. If you had doubts, uh, here's the references. Uh, Arif, American Journal of Physiology, 1982. Fraley and colleagues, New England Journal of Medicine, 1980. And Graf and colleagues, American Journal of Physiology, 1985. Additionally, sodium bicarbonate is often given as an extremely hypertonic solution that can lead to hypernatremia and cellular dehydration. Uh, keep in mind that there's 154 milliequivalents per liter uh, of a normal saline. When you give somebody an amp of sodium bicarbonate, there's 50 milliequivalents in that 50 mL. So this is very hypertonic fluid, and this can result in cellular dehydration. This can result in paradoxical or paradoxically lowering intracellular pH despite a rise in extracellular pH when bicarbonate is administered. And keep in mind what we've said earlier that we know it's the intracellular pH which is really what we're worried about because it's the intracellular pH, the intracellular acidemia, which results in cellular dysfunction leading to tissue dysfunction leading to organ dysfunction. This is due to the fact that when bicarbonate combines with hydrogen ions it forms carbonic acid which is then converted to CO2 and water. Thus, there's an increase in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide with the titration of acid by bicarbonate. This increase in the CO2 can rapidly diffuse into the cells, while the bicarbonate remains extracellular, th thus worsening intracellular acidosis. We're all aware that when we give people large amounts of bicarbonate in their in an ARDS situation, we're going to see an increase in their pCO2. If we're seeing if an increase in their partial pressure of carbon dioxide arterially, we have a much more severe problem intracellularly, where the, where the partial pressure, where the dissolved CO2 will typically run into. Therefore, it's really difficult to recommend the use of bicarbonate for the treatment of a low serum pH alone. It may be necessary, however, if serum bicarbonate falls, say, below 5, because at this level, even a small drop in serum bicarbonate can have a large effect on serum pH. There are other buffers that uh, get used quite a bit. The one that I typically will use in these situations is called THAM. THAM uh, T-H-A-M stands for trishydroxylmethylaminomethane. It is a biologically inert amino acid that can buffer both carbon dioxide and acids. It does not cause production of CO2 and thus works very well in closed systems. Once it is protonated, it is renally excreted at a rate somewhat higher than the creatinine clearance. Therefore, a patient has to have renal function, a reasonably good renal function at that, in order to use THAM. Uh, as with anything, there are potential side effects, and these include hyperkalemia, hypoglycemia, ventilatory depression, and hepatic necrosis. But then hepatic necrosis has been typically reported in neonates. Another interesting buffer is um, uh, well-known but hasn't been able to be used. is called carbicarbon. It's an equal molar mixture of both sodium bicarbonate and sodium carbonate. Carbonate preferentially combines with the hydrogen ion, resulting in production of bicarbonate rather than CO2. The carbonate can also combine with carbonic acid, a reaction which produces bicarbonate. Thus, the acidosis is titrated without the production of CO2 or the lowering of cellular pH, but unfortunately, this is not yet available. This has been a rather lengthy discussion on acidosis, and it's by no means uh, totally inclusive. Uh, if this were a complete discussion of acidosis, we would go on and talk about some of the um, uh, issues of management of diabetic ketoacidosis, things like alcoholic ketoacidosis, and toxins as well. Uh, one of the things that's always important to keep in mind um, is uh, renal failure. Renal failure, both acute and chronic, is a common cause of metabolic acidosis in the ICU. The acidosis of renal failure, both acute and chronic, is largely the result of uh, decreased uh, excretion of ammonium, which in turn can be um, simply the result in decreased renal mass rather than a specific defect.
and you can go through and talk about the various elements of the various types of renal tubular acidosis. We mentioned uh, about hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis as well. One of the things uh, that I think is important to keep in mind uh, is that when we typically think about indications for dialysis, we're thinking about things like hyperkalemia, fluid overload, and uh, azotemia. But uh, acidosis is an indication uh, for um, uh, dialysis. So if you have a patient who is uh, refractory in your acidosis, I would certainly encourage consultation with your renal colleagues, uh, one for their um, uh, insight into the management of the acidosis, which they're uh, uh, certainly um, very uh, knowledgeable on the various uh, types of acidosis and uh, also for the possible consideration for dialysis. Sorry that the topic was so long. This is a rather difficult topic, and many people have um, uh, difficulties with it. This is just focusing on metabolic acidosis, not talking at all about respiratory acidosis. By all means, visit the website, uh, which is uh, www.burndoc.com. Get an email from all of you from all over the world. I do appreciate that, and I appreciate your patience in our delay in getting this one out. It is a beautiful, hot, sunny day here in Warsaw, Poland. This is the... Uh, podcast surgery ICU rounds. This is Jeff Guy. Thank you. That concludes this edition of the podcast surgery ICU rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Uh, please visit the uh, website, uh, which is www.burndoc.com, uh, for copies of many of these articles, and visit the uh, homepage for the podcast as well, uh, which would be uh, icurounds.com.